Kia ora koutou. Hello everyone, welcome to the Human Potential Series Authentic Awakened Action, where we explore the possibilities for taking purposeful action amidst the challenges we face in an increasingly complex world. We talk with trailblazers and thought leaders walking the talk, inspiring change on our planet. I'm your host Pippa Hayes and I'm part of the Earthbeat Fado or family. Earthbeat is an annual festival that takes place in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with the kaupapa, or purpose, to create a platform for transformation and celebration that inspires and empowers new ways of living in this world. Amanda Tattersall is a scholar and changemaker based in Sydney, Australia. She is an internationally recognised researcher and community organiser and the founder of some of Australia's most interesting social change organisations, including Get Up Australia and the Sydney Alliance. She is the Education Lead and Postdoctoral Fellow in the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney and the founder and host of her own Changemakers podcast. Amanda advocates a balanced approach to activism and encourages practices and training to go hand in hand with social change making. To begin our session, I'm going to share a short karakia or traditional prayer from the Māori, the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand, to bring us together and give intention to our kōrero or talk today. Tuiki runga, tuiki raro, tuiki roto, tuiki wao. Karongo te ao, karongo te po. Homie, huie, taakie. Unite above, unite below, unite without, unite within. Listen to the night, listen to the world. Now we come together as one. It's so beautiful. Thank you. Welcome, Amanda. Welcome to the Human Potential Series Authentic Awakened Action. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so I wanted to start off our conversation, um, if you wanted to share with us a little bit about your vast and winding career in social change um, and what it's looked like in its various forms over the years. Sure. <laughs> it's a big question. Um, so just so people, I guess, have a sense of, of what I do. So I... Um, I'm a community organiser and I can explain what that means and come to that in a second. And I'm also a researcher uh, based at the University of Sydney in Australia. And um, in some ways that interconnection of practice, like the doing of social change and reflecting the research of social change has been a part of my, um, of my career. Um, I got in started getting involved in social change when I was at university but I think like everyone um, the impulses and interests in social change um, for me came much earlier I had a I always like to say I had a very progressive grandmother who used to talk about uh, her experience in World War II in the United Kingdom when the bombs would fall and her experience as uh, as as someone who was really poor in, in England as well. And the kind of political vision that she had of the world was one where people should be treated equally. And also um, one where, uh, one where um, we, if you weren't, you, you had the right to fight for that. And so I took those values, I, I guess, to my, 
to my undergraduate years as a as a student and um, got involved uh, after after a couple of years I got very involved in the student movement it was in, and became president of the National Union of Students and on the surface that looks like why I started getting involved in social change but the other thing that went on in my life uh, was that I uh, I have bipolar uh, it's a mental illness, quite a serious mental illness. And when I was 19, I was, um, I had a psychosis and I spent two months in, um, in a hospital, in a psychiatric hospital, uh, recovering from that psychosis. And there's nothing like something so serious and so severe and so utterly destabilizing, like to not even be able to trust your brain, um, to uh, create a space for thinking about doing things differently. And at the time I had thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to argue for justice. I was doing a law degree. And uh, that experience made me put a lot of that aside. And it was after that, I decided to get involved in the student movement. I wanted to be involved in something far more collective. I wanted to be involved in something far more direct. I'd seen lawyers work. I'd worked for a lawyer and I wasn't um, convinced that that practice was what I was wanting to do with my life. And I let it go. I wanted to be a lawyer since I was about 12, but I let it go and let something else come um, because of that health experience that I had. And so Really, since then, I've been involved in in forms of social change. But, you know, I, I like there's many awful things that happen in your life if you have a serious mental health issue like I do. But one of the gifts is that um, I, uh, I have to um, – it, it requires me to change every so often the pace at which I organise. So um, if I work too hard, I get manic and um, – and sometimes after that can can get depressed. And so my brain literally signals to me um, moments where I need to to change orientation. And so that and that change of orientation has led me to um, have this kind of balance between doing and reflecting. So it was after a few years of a lot of doing, student movement, the union movement, the refugee movement, the peace movement, that I ended up deciding to do a PhD on coalition building. And I spent three years out, I lived overseas and researched that question and sort of ruminated on what would it take to, to do powerful collaboration with others. I didn't think that we were very good at that. And then from that, I came uh, back, I was in the United States, I'd come across community organising, which is a way of working that focuses on relationships and an understanding of power to be able to build change it's very deeply grassroots working with local local institutions to build democratic anchors for how we make change work in the long haul it's not a, it's not a flash mobilization it's a long haul form of energy and change and I came back to Australia and helped set up the first of those kinds of organizations in Australia which was called the Sydney Alliance um, and the beautiful thing is, is that kind of organising then travelled over to New Zealand as well. It's um, part of the living wage movement. If people are familiar with the living wage campaigns in New Zealand, it's moved around Australia as well. Um, and so I did that work. That's why I'm a community organiser. I very much identify with that kind of practice, making change from the grassroots. But you know, like with everything, um, I think I had sought after community organising in a way thinking that maybe that it could be um, uh, 
the silver bullet, right? It was going to be the answer. You know, we'd done all these rallies against the war in Iraq and they'd failed. Maybe community organizing was my silver bullet, but I learned over time that it wasn't, that it had strengths, but it also had weaknesses. And I ended up doing um, uh, further research, a postdoctoral fellowship in, um, in, on this question of how do you build change in cities in particular and have, I'm in the process of writing the book that came out of that research about people power in cities. So that is my eclectic experience, right? Is like, is, is, is running hard doing, but then literally not being able to do anymore and having to sit and, and reflect. Mm. Oh, what a fascinating pathway. And you've already touched on the effect that the experience of bipolar and psychosis had on you as a young woman. I wonder, how did that, that experience shift your perspective of the world? What was it in going through, I guess, a, an intimate um, an, an intimate moment with, like you said, not trusting and, and learning probably to trust again your own mind? How did that um, inform how you interact with the world? Mm there were lots of dimensions to the lessons that came from my experience. Um, the not trusting your mind is really scary. You know, like it, it really did um, make me, there was a lot of, I had a lot of doubt in myself as a consequence of that experience and a lot of anxiety and fear, you know, two months, you know, a lot of people have had experiences of lockdown. Now I can assure everyone that the experience of being locked in a psychiatric ward when you're 19 surrounded by mainly male older people is is nothing short of terrifying and um is such a difficult experience that people don't talk about right because there's so much shame associated with it um but we need to talk about these kind of things because actually they're frighteningly common and lots of people have mental health experiences and it in some ways it informs our identity like other like other um like other things that identify our lives our, our mental health can identify our life too so I had that and I still live with that, right? This sort of doubt, the this sort of trust, lack of trust in my own mind. Maybe there's strength in that as well as weakness. Maybe some of us would do well to um, have some doubt in our thoughts sometimes. Um, you know, Socrates said that that would be a good idea. And I kind of feel like there's not all bad in having self-doubt, but it also creates great um, uncertainty and anxiety. But I think that my bigger problem and I say problem in that it's something that I feel like I need to, to tackle with my life is the kind of just disgusting discrimination that I have faced as a consequence of my experience. So when I came out of hospital when I was 19, um, I actually in, in, endured my psychosis. Uh, I got to the heady, um, frightening part of it at a National Union of Students conference. I was there <clears throat> I was they're representing the student newspaper from my university and I, and I didn't really know anyone and I was very, very sick. And years later when I decided that I was going to get involved in the student movement and that I ran for president of the National Union of Students, this barrage of toxic waste was spilled out onto me from others who sought to um, who discredit my ability to be a candidate. So I had a colleague tell everyone that I needed wasn't taking my medication someone else saying that I was unstable people pretending to shake medication bottles at meetings at me and that it was just so sad you know like it was just so sad and it's humiliating um 
And, you know, in some ways at the time, it just fueled me, right? Like I just got so angry and I was determined to not just be the president of the National Union of Students. I was going to be the best president of the National Union of Students ever. And we were, we had a great year that year and we were very sick. We stopped this terrible piece of legislation called voluntary student unionism. And we stopped these terrible debts into higher education. But it's an awful thing to feel like you've got to be 10 times better than everyone else just to be okay. You know, women feel that, people of colour feel that, Indigenous people feel that. And I felt that as much, much more actually, because I had a mental illness than because I, um, I actually like to call it a brain difference. Like I think mental illness creates this sort of clinicization of a, a, my brain. My brain is just different to everyone else's. And sure, it causes, <laughs> causes quite a lot of problems for me, but it, it doesn't need to cause people to discriminate against me. And so after that experience, I stopped. I pretended it didn't exist. And, uh, you know, I went overseas soon after. And I just literally repressed that I wasn't, I didn't need to take medication. I was in a sort of abeyance period and I didn't have a doctor. The mental health system is not very good at checking up on people, even if they've been in hospital and I was okay. Well, I wasn't okay, but I just pretended I was okay. And it took quite a long time for me to then start talking to others again and to talk to others, um, even privately about my experience because I had just been so um, humiliated by by people's aggression towards who I was, you know, shaking medicine bottles in my face really did um, cause me pain. And the place where I I I, I, um, I came out, sorry to use that language, but it feels like that that's what it was for me, um, was when I was working at the Sydney Alliance. Years into me working at the Sydney Alliance, I started to tell people, I used to tell people that I had a health experience when I was 19. It was very motivational for why I was involved in social change. And I got brave enough to tell people actually it was. It was not just a health experience. It was, I had a psychotic break and was hospitalized. And it, it, initially, at least, it, it was okay. People were accepting and I felt safe. And that was amazing. But, you know, I wish that this story had a happy ending, you know, like I wish that then the ending to this story was, oh, and then everyone in the Sydney Alliance loved me forever and mental health is fine and, you know, the world is a better place, but that's not what happened. And in some ways that's what fuels my my um, interest and passion in continuing to work on this issue of um, mental health today, which is that I had another psychotic episode when I was uh, nine years in to running the Sydney Alliance as the lead organiser of the Sydney Alliance. And um, by that point, I was feeling not well um, anyway at the Alliance. The Alliance had made me sick uh, through the kind of uh, just carrying this thing <laughs> just had had created a real sickness in me. And I was depressed and manic and unwell and I had two young children and just was not coping. And I took breaks and I um, told people, but still didn't seem to register. Anyway, in 2015, um, sorry, in 2016, in February 2016, after I returned from four months leave, I was, uh, I was sacked by the organisation that I'd founded. And that 
that was the other, you know, like mental health isn't something that happens in a moment. Mental health, you know, your brain difference, you carry it with you throughout your life. And it's something that I've carried and it's been, it hurt, it hurt more than anything to, um, to lose your job is your humiliation no matter what to to lose your job from the organization that you founded from the people who you thought um they trusted you and understood you and that you're in a trusting relationship with i it's hard for me to express how how much pain that caused but there's more to the story so several years later um the alliance came back to me and they said uh, having j- sort of ignored me, like literally treated me like I was dead, um, they came and sort of knocked on my door metaphorically via another person and said, we'd like to be in relationship. And I said to them, well, I'm sorry, mates, you can only be in relationship with me if you hold a public event and apologize for what you did. That's the condition. There will be no relationship unless you apologize for what you did to me. So they went away and had to think about it. And that was quite, it had to have quite a long thing. Can I accept that? Right. Like that, that was quite a, it was a big ask. Most people are never held to account for their actions. Heaps of people with mental illness are sacked from their organizations. Um, and there is no recrimination for that. So they went away, they had a think and they decided to hold the event. So last year, you know, not, not a dissimilar time from this last year, uh, they held an event, a hundred people held it and was a women's association, which was a space that I really trusted uh people came together and said sorry and I explained to them what I'd gone through it was it was powerful that does sound like somewhat of a happy ending to the story um but like you say there is still huge discrimination out there against mental illness and people experiencing brain diversity um But I feel that it's super important that people like you with public profiles are speaking out and are normalizing the experience. You know, we all have a brain. We all have different experiences of trying to own and operate this um, complex organ sitting in our heads that drives a lot of our behaviors and interactions. Um, So I think the more I feel like the more that we talk about it, um, the more we realize that we're all we're all dealing with it in some degree, some way, shape or form. Um, I've done some work with a mental health show in New Zealand actually for a long time and we had a woman, an incredible woman who was diagnosed with schizophrenia you know, many, many years ago and has done a lot of work in advocacy in the area since and she was locked up um, as a young woman also and she said it wasn't the voices in my head um, that were the most frightening thing, it was the way that I was told to deal with them and the way that I was dealt with because of them. And so she's gone, she had gone through a long journey um, of actually finding peace with the way that her brain operated and, you know, now lives a very full, flourishing life where she supports others in that process too. So, yeah, I just want to kind of give that moment to acknowledge you speaking out because it is a big thing. Um, there's still a lot of stigmatisation and like you say, people are sacked from their jobs because of mental illness and it, it is still happening. So while... The story may still be continuing. It feels like it's unfolding in a more supportive direction of everybody. Yeah. Once you have a voice and you're less, like you're not, it's not like you're not scared. Like I'm scared just like anyone. Um, 
but having a voice and not being frightened of being public and who of who like not being frightened of who you are um that it does change everything and you know the sydney alliance and and i aren't in intimate relationship i still think that i um scare slash intimidate slash lots of things my in my relationship with them as an institution but for me it doesn't matter because it's about a bigger thing for me now it's not about that um that's what the power of that that assembly was is that it made it for a long time it was about how I'd been treated by a specific group of people and now it's about changing how we're all treated by everyone and you know this pandemic has been a perfect example of of the sort of you know of the paucity of of how we understand mental health right like and I'm I am a I take medication I'm a big believer in doctors I rely on doctors it's not, I'm not what I'm about to say is no critique of the medical profession but only seeing mental health and brain difference as a clinical issue is a terrible mistake because my job affects my mental health. My capacity for recreation affects my mental health. Having children affects my mental health. It's all of my life. And we need to be in a space where we can see that our brains, just like every other part of us, is part of who we are as people. It's not about an identity politics, but it is about our, a part of our identity. And our policy and our political um, decisions need to be based on a holistic approach to who our brains are, not just one that sees it relegated to clinicians and doctors. Every part of our lives needs to have some awareness of um, our brains. And when that happens, then we will be in a, that's, that's a good place for us to be. And, you know, like I, my son, my son has autism, right? He's young, he's, young, he's, he's nine years old. And when he gets old, uh, I don't want him to have to struggle with the same kind of crap that I have had to deal with my most of my life, you know? Like I feel like I've got a clock on the kind of change that that I want to achieve in this space. Autism is completely different to bipolar, but this idea of stigma, that is similar. So I do I do feel that that is I feel like this space is a, a space for a new social movement. That's what I feel. I feel that this is another space where there needs to be a full court press pressure that it won't look like other social movements. I'm not saying that the mentally ill should go and have a big demonstration. <laughs> I'm not arguing for that. Although that could be quite fun. Um, but the idea of sustained public political advocacy, that, let's have that. And often from what I've observed of hearing you know hundreds of people's st stories over the years is often those with mental health conditions and using quotation marks um, or mental illnesses again quotation marks is often they're the most sensitive ones they're actually highly attuned to um, to nuances that are happening in, in, in the world and how those I guess those social political structures are affecting us as humans and they're like, often refer to them as the canaries in the coal mine they're a lot more sensitive um, to any disruptions or disturbances than perhaps the, the middle of the curve. So it's like, well, maybe there's actually something to learn from these signals that we're getting and something to listen to before we get into 
mass crisis of mm. you know environment climate and and whatever else we're in the midst of at the moment mm. I think that's true I think that those who have a, a tendency to suffer from depression feel the pain that others may identify but not be able to quite touch they feel it in their bodies right their brains and their bodies also, it's true of social change as well, right? So Martin Luther King had bipolar, right? Famously talks about the fact that that his elevations and his depressions were essential to the organizing that he did. You know, his elevations gave him the, the capacity to connect with others and his depression gave him the capacity to empathize with others. And I think that there's a truth to that. There's nothing to be frightened in, in the fact that we have brain differences you know people it's personified in the press as though everyone with mental illness has is violent and it's it's not it's it is true to say that there is a very 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 small percentage of people who who have experiences of violence and often violence to themselves let's be perfectly honest more than to others tragically much much more tragically but you know like we shouldn't ignore that 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 violence exists but you know uh love and tender care and acceptance change things so often. If we had more of that, I think that we'd be in a better place. Well, if you look into the way that the autonomic nervous system and, and trauma it plays out, if people are not feeling safe and they're feeling in a state of fear and anxiety, then there's more likelihood that they're going to act out. But as you say, if we have environments of love and care and empathy and compassion, then it's much more likely that... Um, people's symptoms, again, quote unquote, um, are not going to be as prevalent or, or issuesome, really. Um, so what does a society like that look like? Oh, my God. It's hard to imagine. You know, in, take, to take it back to organising, this guy, Saul Alinsky, who's like the grandfather of community organising, used to say people have an imagination that's parallel to the power they have to achieve change, right? So it's sort of suggesting that it's hard to imagine abstract utopias, right? To use sort of the link because it feels like nowhere, right? You know, and that's how utopia has historically been um, understood. And Alinsky says the way to think about um, the think about the possible is to build the power to achieve it. And I think so. Part of me, I don't know what that amazing society looks like um and part of me feels like for me the focus is on how to build the kind of relationships understanding trust um that could help us imagine it because it's with those relationships that we could have you know with that sense of power <laughs> a word that many people don't like but power with is what I mean is like a sort of connect creative connection between and across a diverse array of people that um, not only could be Im Im imagined, but we could maybe see it happen. Yeah. And how does that, just to paint a little bit more of a picture around your work, how does your work walk towards or cross that bridge um, between a utopian world or what we have the capacity to, to build? Interesting you say that. So my new research, so this, I literally have just spent the last week writing a, an article on prefigurative power. So, right, so this question of utopia is right front of mind, um, <laughs> literally. Uh, we've been looking at cities and how pe people make change in cities, right? And looking at cities mainly because they're, they're conglomerations, agglomerations of where people 
live. It's where most of the world's population are. It's where most of the the, the sort of um, sharp divisions and problems exist, whether it's around making making a good life, you know, inequality and where climate change is, is being aggravated. Um, and, you know, basics like transport, education, health, all that sort of stuff, right? And so we've looked at all these cities and looked at ca uh, campaigns or organisations or networks in cities, um, interesting cities, right? So Hong Kong is one of our cities. I went to Hong Kong during the protests. Barcelona, amazing stuff going on in Barcelona in terms of political parties, all these cool cities. One of the cities we've been to is, is Cape Town. I went to Cape Town a few years ago. I was blessed to go there. I brought my... Um, my other son, my older son, with me. We went on this amazing adventure into the, the housing crisis in, in Cape Town and researched an organisation called Reclaim the City, which had um, been campaigning for, for black housing in the inner city. And in, in doing that campaign had done this thing, what we I'm calling a form of prefigurative power. So prefiguring or modelling the future that you want. Um, and they'd they'd occupied uh, two disused hospital precincts, one a, one a hospital, one a nursing home, and they turned it into emergency housing. And what we've found, like it's most obvious in that place, but it, this kind of, you know, we could call it prefigurative power, pragmatic prefiguration. It's not based on the traditional understanding of prefiguration, which is anarchism um, or Christianity, actually. It also comes from from the Christian tradition, but it's more, um, it's more the sort of what is important and useful to do for building the, a movement in this moment. It was done during the umbrella movement in, in um, Hong Kong as well. Like it happens, it actually happens a lot in social movements, far more than, than bless anarchists, than anarchists are able to do. Like it happens as a strategy, lots, um, you know, happened in Australia during the 70s, during the women's refuge movement, where they occupied a house and set up a women's refuge because they could not negotiate. The government refused to provide refuges for domestic violence victims, right, the survivors. And so they started creating them on their own. Same kind of principle. And um, I found that I just find that kind of strategy really interesting because in South Africa, it was literally the linchpin that saw them win massive gains in affordable housing. 11 precincts created, a court case that is now regulated that they've got to enforce affordable housing provisions in the city. It's They've turned the city around and for everyone involved and objectively, it's these occupations, these prefigurative spaces that have made that happen. And so for me, I like to hold the utopia in the present, you know, um, Block, uh, Fred Block, who's a who's an old Marxist writer, talked about the idea of concrete utopia as opposed to abstract utopia. And he talked about it as being something you can feel and touch, the realism of it. And I think for me, in the activism that I do and see and what I kind of think is powerful, but also powerful because it tells a story about what is possible, that um, practising the politics of what you envision in the present, not just because you have really great long meetings, like lots of people can do that, but because you could actually have community experiments around creating the things, the infrastructure, the public things you think need to need to occur. I think that stuff is, I mean, that's how I like to hold the two things together. Mm, fantastic. You talk um about healthy reflection and the culture of reflection alongside action being really critical in social change movements. I'm just wondering in this kind of 
utopian, the idealistic, but also concrete reality and, you know, creating change, what is the significance of reflective practices within that and how can they inform, I guess, how we, how we move within those streams? Well, even if you're not thinking about utopia, I think you need to think about reflection. You know, like I think it's um, a lack of space for reflection leads to burnout as well. Like it's a very practical thing to be able to have the space to, to, to hold yourself and to, to just check in um, as being critical. Um, and I don't think anyone does that enough. You know, I think that um, although you can, you can become so reflective you know, this, in my experience with the Sydney Alliance, it was with the church communities that were so prayerful <laughs> that they weren't acting on the prayers, right? Like you, you, you can't, it's that you can be too reflective because you just don't act and you can be too active because you just act all the time, right? Just like I have to hold in my mind mania and depression intention, you know, or life cycles, death cycles, you know, there's lots of writing on this idea of these two wheels intention, we need to do this in all of our activism. You know, it's been hugely important to me. Like I was racing ahead being a union organiser, working on social justice issues. And then I took out time, did a PhD, and all of a sudden I started building a broad-based broad community organising in Australia, a radical shift that completely changed how coalition building was being done in, in Sydney because it just created a set of more powerful relationships between people. I would have just been doing more issue-based coalitions that probably would have just been exhausting you know but with this change a whole culture changed um and I think that that's the faith that people that's the faith that people need right to use another re religious metaphor right you, you, we need the faith that acting differently or reflect that reflection will lead to different action rather than be a waste of time like I think a lot of people fear that if they do reflection it's self-indulgent you know that's you know, sort of, they've just got to keep sort of a masochist culture of action. And unless they do that, then the world won't change. You know, the world's so terrible, climate change, 10 years, we're all in, it's a disaster. It's true, right? All those things are true. But if we don't reflect and we don't think about how we could change things and do things differently, we we just risk making the same mistakes. You know, that's what Einstein said. You just keep doing the same thing again and again and again. You're mad. It's insanity to think you'll have different results. You know, we should take a lesson from the, those who are a bit more insane and who are used to handling the tension of action and reflection and and commit to a culture of both. So what might some reflective practices look like? So I think, look, you know, there's, there's lots of words written on this sort of stuff. I think simple things like um, journaling is really helpful. That's what I did with the Sydney Alliance every Friday afternoon at four o'clock. I would sit down and I would write an email to my mentor and it was a sort of brain dump of what was um, keeping me up at night in terms of the organising. And so it's, it's setting up the habits for this kind of work, you know, like it's not just occasionally buying a journal, although I've done that too, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to buy a journal and reflect now. Like, I mean, like a habitual practice, but I think you can't do this kind of stuff alone. Like, I, I think that that's, um, you're kidding yourself if you think you can really do this kind of stuff on your reflective practice on your own. I think that people need mentors, if not mentors, buddies, uh, peers who who they commit to 
to, to, to working on so they can be held accountable. Like we, we don't, um, you know, so these are not usual words that are used in self-care lessons, but they're my words from that I've learned from community organizing. And I think they're essential. Like if we want to be, we need to be held accountable to our own practice around reflection to, to, to our better selves, to the qualities of leadership that we want to be, you know, we're a dynamic people in change and we need help. We can't just, we're just not going to do it or be able to do it on our own. So a mentor has been an incredibly important um, part of my self-reflection. The other space that I think is really useful is just, is um, education, uh, like training and education, like group spaces, courses, long short courses, short courses, where people can be prodded with new content. So we used to do that at the Alliance. We ran a, a, course, a course called um, the six-day training. I do that now. This year, Changemakers has set up a, a, a community organising school that's on quite late for New Zealand. But, you know, if you've got night hours, I'm sure they could come in and join. It's weekly on Thursday nights. And people can just come and they learn um, from lots of case studies as well as learning from um, sort of conceptual tools. And I just think that those spaces are important. Go and read books too, read all the books, listen to the podcasts, do all those things, but then also be in a space where you can talk about your insights together and think about how you might apply that practice in your own life. And then take those insights and talk to your mentor and then test those insights in your actual practice. Like I think that there's this process of, of learning to practice that, um, you know, you don't want to rush. Like sometimes you'll hear an idea, it'll take you years before you apply it. That's fine. It needs to percolate, right? Some things just need to cook for a long time. But um, no pressure. Nothing happens without any pressure. It's a vacuum. It's space. It's empty. So there needs to be some sense of heat um, in a reflective practice as well. So these are all practices that you use yourself. Are there, yeah. any, are there any others that you can throw in there that you find useful? Do I use these reflective practices? Oh, all the time because I'm so great. Of course, sometimes I do well and sometimes I struggle. I am human. <laughs> but, you know, I would say some of those practices is what led me to the big career changes that I've made that I think have been really important for my for insights. I mean, some of it is also just reflecting on your own life. Like me getting for real about the fact that I have bipolar after getting sacked because couldn't hide from it anymore. It was really for real in my life and it was a humiliation and working out what I was going to do with that. It was four years before that assembly. Um, that was hugely important. And even before that, like I made a commitment that I was going to write a book about brain difference to process it for myself. It didn't matter what others did. It was going to be for myself that, you know, in, in a way I've, I've decided that I, a, a more conscious reflective practice with a little bit of action attached with it um, is what I need to be able to then do the next bit of that journey. You know? Yeah, yeah it's, it's very common in the social change movement to come action, move to action first, isn't it, without thinking so much about what that action's for or, or mm. to be ignited and, and propelled by rage or, you know, a huge sense of injustice. Um, and it seems like quite a, almost quite a feat to reverse that patterning or that conditioning or to build new ways of, of engaging in, in social action. Um, 
do you have any more suggestions or guidance or um, tips of how that might look for some people that are out there really engaging in those movements and 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 wanting to shift things but feeling kind of stuck in the rut of all this is the way that we have to do it Mm. yeah so that's hard if someone's feeling like they're stuck right um I would say that um you're right. That's a. I agree with your characterization of social movements. I think there's a different. There is a different way, like the organising way, which is not. I guess I said it's full of, <laughs> full of, full of limitations too. Um, has a phrase that say you got to build your power, and then you've got to use your power. And I think the frenetic activism tries to use the power they've got, which means that they they run up empty all the time because they haven't built the power. Right. You've got to go out and build new relationships, build new networks build new people people power in order to be able to 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 be able to use the power well and I also would agitate people if you don't think that you are using the power if you're getting anywhere with using the power you've got then you do need to think about how you're going to build a different kind of power and the most interesting practice when it comes to building power is to build relationships but I don't mean like you know, bullshit relationships where, you know, oh, hi, how was the weather? Oh, soccer was good on the weekend. How was it for your kid? Not that. What I mean is an intentional practice of relational meetings. And, you know, we've got some stuff on the Changemakers website that, um, change, so changemakerspodcast.org that talks about relational meetings and even a couple of trainings that, that I've run on relational meetings if people are curious. But it's the idea of being able to spend 30 to 45 minutes with someone and really find out about what moves and motivates them, what their story is, and to share a little bit of yours. And then to do it again and again, because it's like as if we can know someone in 45 minutes, right? Like there's so much for us to be able to engage and share. And in doing so, we're not just trying to find, explore passive stories, but we're really trying to explore interested appetite for eventually doing new things together. And that's how I think people can can change their practice. Now you can't do that on your own. I did when I did the Sydney Alliance. I you know ended up building a massive coalition of people who are prepared to do that kind of work. But that idea of a more intentional commitment to relationships, like do you know the people who you work with really well? Do you know the people on who you know who go to your kids' school really well? How well do you know them, or is it or is it just superficial? Do you know what moves them? Do you know what are the significant stories in their life? Have you shared with them who you are? You know, life is more rich. It's definitely, it's definitely just more full if we're able to have these kinds of connections. And I think that that is, I learned that when I was 30, when I came across community organizing and um, I couldn't be more grateful for that lesson, you know. Thank you. And also to thinking about people that aren't necessarily involved in social activism organisations. They don't have their feed in, they don't necessarily have any existing relationships, um, but are feeling a real urgency around what's happening in the external world. You know, we're hearing news left, right and centre about all sorts of crises, including climate, environment, financial, political, racial, etc, etc. Um do you have any guidance for people that are really feeling that that squeeze and that pressure and wanting to contribute or wanting to wanting to be able to help things in a more positive direction but have no idea really where to begin with it? Yeah, because it can be overwhelming. Like you don't know where to start. You don't want to muck it up, you know. <clears throat> I would say that <laughs> they're going to make less mistakes. 
they're going to make more mistakes if they sit on their ass, right? This is not the time for, 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 for sitting back and checking life out. If you are worried and passionate about what you can do, I would um, firstly ask myself what it is, what is the thing that is most deeply important to you at the moment, right? You know, you want to tap into your own concerns and, and interests and worries like what is and why you know like spend a little bit of time thinking about what is it that is something that you could really commit to for a for a proper amount of time so not a week or a month but like is there something in your life that something that you care about in your life that you might make a commitment to for a year or even two years right because there's no point flying in and flying out we don't need fly and fly out we need people who are going to stick in and then it's a question of, is that thing, uh, is anyone else working on that thing, right? Go and talk to people, right? Ask everyone. People have insights that you don't um, know. Ask the p parents at your kid's school. Ask your friends at work. Google the crap out of the issue, right? See if you can find someone. You may find someone who's great, bam, good. You may find someone who's not of the sensibility that you're interested in, right? Like they've got a different approach to the, the question. In which case, there is no harm in setting something up yourself. And, you know, those processes uh, look tricky from the outside, but don't need to be. I mean, what you need to build is a group of people prepared to act. And you can do that in, a lots, in lots of ways. You can find a group of friends who are prepared to act with you and then go public with something, or you could just go public on, on your own. But you need to build something that's going to be sustainable for you to be able to manage right like so so you need to work out how you're going to build a team a little team to build a big team but those email processes you know like um change.org all those sort of things they are quite a helpful mechanism for being able to identify people or, or facebook events or facebook petitions those sort of techniques can be quite a useful way to be able to build what we would call an immediate constituency and so that's what you need to start with. You need to find a group of people who you can work with and then you can make a plan together. Um, I know it sounds overwhelming, but actually as soon as you've got a group of people working on something, even if your group of people is like four people, you, two mates you knew and someone else is a mate of a mate, then you're, you're on your way to being able to do something. And there is no wrong. There's just learning. Just make sure as you're building, whatever you're building, you evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. And I don't mean like call someone to write a paper for you I mean like do a debrief after every meeting everything what worked what will we change what worked what will we change and then you know read books listen to podcasts go to a few trainings and all of a sudden it, it won't feel as difficult but but not acting like the paralysis of being overwhelmed that's just going to sit with you and make you feel frustrated so if you want to act you know, uh, they would be some steps. Go find a group. That's what you need to create. Yeah, and I, I hear the the importance of acting, and and as I mentioned, this urgency that feels like it's swelling um, globally at the moment. I've also recently uh, or read a recent article you wrote about slowing down the approach to climate change, and I wonder if you can talk more a little bit about the importance and the relevance of slowing down in the face of urgency. Yeah, well, it's this building power, using power piece, which is that we're using all the power that we've got when it comes to climate change and we haven't, we just don't have enough of it. And so we keep losing. <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, 
and, and I guess that argument around the slowing down piece, I feel like really comes for people who are in it, in the movement. I actually think those who are outside the movement, we want their innovation into creating something new. You know, there's this really amazing woman um, in Australia who set up this uh, conversations for change process with dinner table conversations about climate change, engaging thousands and thousands of people who'd never been involved, completely creative. She wasn't involved in the movement before she came up with the idea. Brilliant. Right. That's what people who are new to the movement can do. People who are in the movement, if they keep following into the patterns of, that have gone before them, we can fall into bad steps. So I'm not originally from the climate movement, although I, 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 I respect and appreciate it. I, I'm, I see myself as a community organizer on lots of different movements. And when I got frustrated that the movement was over here, well, we're not speaking for other places, but in Australia was, was very, let's have another action kind of, and also let's sit with the relationships we've got. So we'll have, we'll have meetings with 20 climate leaders, but there are no union leaders in the room, which just seems crazy. Um, I, uh, thought we should do something different and so when the green new deal stuff happened in the united states we moved in a sort of very long process took us a year to to build towards a, a sort of public report and um way of action called the real deal because we're super real in australia right with hilarious language um to have a different approach to climate change and to build a much broader base a much broader constituency and so that was about going slow to go fast because everyone else was going fast. So well, we wanted to do something different. I like doing things that are different. You know, we didn't need to also go fast. <laughs> Otherwise, we're all just going fast together. Like, it's ridiculous. People need to be at a different pace. You know, so I think, I think, you know, I remember having conversations with the climate movement in 2009 about stronger relational practice. And everyone told me they didn't have time. It's like, oh, what a pity. Because you did have time and things fucked up so much between then and now. If only, uh, you know, whatever, you know, maybe we can learn about how to do things differently now. Nothing is ever so urgent that it can't be done well. Talk to Indigenous communities, you know, like I think that we can get a lot of insight. It's not like colonialism wasn't absolutely despicably horrendous. But racing at it was never going to necessarily solve the problem. It needed to be thoughtful. I think we can learn a lot from that. So it's almost paradoxical that part of the issue of, of climate crisis and breakdown is that we've been moving so fast in terms of um, progression and economically and um, materially. And we're trying to, again, use that Einstein quote of, of solving a problem from the same level. And it's like, well, if we're just meeting it with that, it kind of seems like blind ignorance in a way. So, yeah, I really um, appreciate the, the sentiment of it's almost like we need to change our entire thinking and entire approach of how we do things. And mm -hmm. that's pretty, um, pretty scary and confronting and um, unusual and a bit awkward and... Um, yeah. Yeah, it feels like we're talking before about self-reflective practices and, and where they fit and it's almost like counterintuitive to to be doing things in this different way. But yeah, personally, um, having a few of these conversations recently feels like, yeah, maybe a completely different approach is actually the only way. Mm. Yeah, well, again, Alinsky talked about jiu-jitsu. 
social change is jujitsu. You need to use the power of your opponent to defeat them. And maybe some of that kind of thinking is much more helpful than trying to beat your head against a brick wall. And um, with your report, The Real Deal, it sounded like quite a process and intimate journey, um, really, with lots of rich learning experiences. And I wondered if you'd like to share a little bit about that, what came up for you and what, what you personally learned and what you learned as a group through that process. It was. So just so people understand, we built this coalition that was kind of a, what I call, because I've written and done so much on coalitions, I wanted to build something new, <laughs> you know, because most will try something new because the ones I've done before are great, but, you know, still emerging. Um, so this one I thought of as, as a less is more. We, get, we invited leading sites, leading people from different sectors and communities, so from union, community, climate and business groups. And so we didn't try and get everyone but just people who could then um, speak back to their sector and involve their sector in the, in the conversation. So around the table, it would only be, you know, 10, 12 organisations, but um, the sort of they could punch above their weight because they were from different sectors and they were, they were respected in their sectors, right? So, um, and we did have the benefit of meeting before, uh, before coronavirus. We had a couple of workshops before coronavirus. And so there was sort of some good work done on relationships and trust building before we all lock down. And, and so people know in Australia, we're, we're really still not having big meetings, right? So we've relied on Zoom to be able to hold this group of people together. And also it's national. So we've got people in Western Australia. It's not very easy to, 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 to do face-to-face -to -face anyway. Um, and so the thing there's been there have been lots of lessons there's been a lot of education across the groups actually and even just around lowest common denominator like I think groups will necessarily normally slide to make other people feel happy and then feel themselves feel okay but that kind of issue work gets us nowhere you know it just makes everyone feel like they're tolerating each other but no one's actually um, pursuing what what they need to get up in the morning right and so that's fine for a press release and it's fine for, um, you know, a bit of media, but it's, it's just not nearly enough for when it comes to making um, sustained social change. We need to be acting on people's deepest interests. What are the things that, that, that are the biggest concerns in these organisations, their biggest worries and anxieties that they can't solve on their own potentially. So we, um, we uh, have been having those conversations. So there's been a lot of education between unions and the climate groups about each other because each of them think they know which the other one wants. <laughs> and we've been doing some learning. So that's been, that's been good. Um, and, uh, and in doing that learning, there's been, um, uh, you know, like a, a good education work and, and, and people have been changing. Similarly, you need to learn about theory of change. So we've got some organisations that are social movements and some organisations that are much more organising and, and slower. And they've had to learn how to work out, how to respect each other and find spaces for each other because they're different. So there's, there's that piece of insight and learning, which has been really um, powerful. Um, but the other one has been that I'm sort of proudest of is sort of a deep learning around first nations work in in so we have been saying that this work this real deal coalition is going to allow and support first nation leaders to lead on transition 
but they're, they're cheap words. They're cheap words. Like what does that actually look like? And how do, how do people even begin to imagine what that um, looks like? And the thing was is that some of our First Nations leaders and, and one of their organisations called us on it and said, we don't feel like that this is kind of super duper, 100%, you know, um, working perfectly. What could we do about that? And we had this powerful conversation between the leaders, which was educative and exploratory and wasn't about people making mistakes. It wasn't about each other calling each other out for not saying the right thing. Everyone was allowed, it was a, lear it was a rich learning conversation where people could just talk things through and and create cast forward what could happen um to make things stronger and it was amazing and I and I reckon that happens very often I think that we think I think that people sort of bullshit each other that you know we, we say that we're really good on this stuff I don't think that we're really good on this stuff I think that we um marginalize First Nations questions and um and First Nations communities are often overwhelmed with the the level of work on their shoulders that they they don't have the space or time to be able to come into some of those other conversations and they just sort of let them pass. Um, and working out how to make those relationships work differently, you know, not that we've fixed it, like we've just started, right? Um, that could be a that could be something that we do. That's something I hope we do well over time. What did come up from that dialogue with, with First Nation leaders? Um, what sort of emerged as the really important threads that they feel, um, you know, they need to pull on further for progress and for, I guess, more equality? So one was slowing down, slowing down, you know, which I think was interesting. Two was stronger relationships, right, for people to make the time for everyone to get to know each other, Um in a really um, spiderwebby kind of way as opposed to a sort of spoken wheel kind of way. Like I had relationships, but like <laughs> what is the point of that? <laughs> the coalition is the entity that we're talking about. Um, and the role of, of place, work in place. So, um, you know, like t national coalitions are fine, but if those national coalitions don't register transformation in particular places around the country, um, particularly in places that are more remote communities or where um, oil and gas or renewables are likely to be sites um, for, for transition, um, then it's just a national conversation. It does feel like it's up there, but if it can land in those places, then I um, then it then it's more significant. So it was interesting. And in the real deal you've talked about fostering participatory power rather than that traditional uh, top-down power structure. Um, can you explain what that might look like? Mm, sure. So the idea is to have spaces where people can um, <laughs> sort of be in charge of their own destiny, right? Like that policy is often worked out by wonky dudes, Often they often are dudes. Sometimes women too, of course. Um, in uh, you know big bureaucracies or in big universities, uh, and it's sort of then spewed out into communities. And with climate change in particular, but 
economic transition as well. But it's just not working to have that kind of, I mean, I don't think it ever worked, but it's really not working now because what's happening now is people are, are building a narrative around the elites and the elites aren't um, ideological. The elites are the rich people who are writing the policy, who don't understand our communities. And so the question is, is the, what a good progressive people going to do in response to that? And the answer is, well, we are going to run a policy process that means that people get to talk about what they want for their communities and it's those conversations that then direct the content of the policies that are developed not and I'm working at a university right like some of our people are beautiful and some of our people are the dudes <laughs> writing the policies it's countercultural in my institution as well um and so that kind of participatory process is the aim. We're sort of seeing that as capable of working on a couple of scales. So it can happen locally. There's tools that people that might be familiar with, like participatory action research methods, where where people sort of are embedding communities, go through processes of listening and consultation and discussion, not consultation with like councils or government, consultations with each other, deliberative processes, sometimes it's called, to work out solutions that they need, then having identified them, work out how they could make that happen. And on questions of um, climate change, they're, they're, sometimes that's happening. So we've got this region in Australia called the Hunter Valley. It's the largest coal producing um, thing in the world. And they're doing this really well. Right, so there's a lot of this kind of stuff happening. With we want to scale that to other places and and support those in the Hunter Valley to be able to do it even better. So there's locally scaled stuff, this place-based stuff, the same stuff that First Nations communities are interested in. And then the second piece is we want to experiment with how we can do deliberative um, work nationally. So can we come up with pro, uh, uh, processes that use tech and digital like so like things like zoom but also things like um online tech like that's not camera based like it's sort of you know reddit style stuff it's used in taiwan it's been used in spain um to allow spaces for people to be more involved in their policy processes again not with government this is civil society organized civil society and progressive market players organizing themselves at one level to suggest policy, but anyone can suggest policy. It's also about to deliberate and make ch difficult choices about priorities. So, you know, we want people to feel that sense of responsibility of, of okay, is X amount of money to spend? Where should we spend it? So, you know, mixing in ideas of participatory democracy that have been used um, in Europe, America, and came out of Brazil, all those ideas where we're going to play with some of those ideas for, um, developing a different kind of policy framework around around climate economic transition but also more than that we want to change how care is delivered we want to change how education is delivered we want to change how healthcare is delivered we want we want whole scale um transformation we want to reset the relationship between the market and the state by building a, a stronger democracy wow no mean feat hey what are the next steps for the real deal now that the report's been completed and, and published so next step is a bit of internal work, sign, you know, working up a, a strategy for next year, which is basically the focus for this year. And then next year is, as you could imagine, rolling out that strategy. And it'll have a couple of scales, as I've mentioned. One is this national piece. Second is, is a long-term place-based piece. We want to hopefully work in five communities around the country to model what a 
what a real deal transition could look like. Um, some of them will be urban, some regional, some remote, and they'll be geographically mixed across the country. Um, and then also just some policy work with individual partners, you know. So some of our partners are worried about job losses and what and what what's going to happen to, to factory closures. Some of our partners are interested in home care and aged care. Some of our partners. So there's a lot of a lot of space for coming up with um, like bespoke policy as well. I mean, the beautiful thing is, this is the cool thing about partnering with a university. Um, no disrespect on think tanks, but a think tank has a couple of staff. Like the university, for better or worse, and we're seeking to work with all the universities in, in the country, have the best researchers in Australia, you know, best researchers. And so we can, if we can facilitate powerful relationships between civil society, progressive market and the university, we hope to be able to come up with some really creative policies as well. Wonderful. Yeah, talking, going back to what we were talking before about um, reflective practices, listening, doing things in a different way. I've also read an article that you've written about uh, pre-existing ideologies being a hindrance to change and then also at the same time obviously we learn from the past and we learn from history so how can we find that balance between between the pre-existing ideologies and what we've learned and what we know and then opening up to um, something new and something different mm. yeah because I think that ideologies can are a pretty exaggerated form of historical learning because they're sort of calcified sometimes into these very rigid beliefs that well, you're in or you're out um, I'm a big believer in learning from from history. Um, I think we can do that in a sort of richer way than sometimes is practiced in either left or right ideologies. So I sometimes feel like the ideological stuff is just used to mask what what failed in the past rather than um, rather than give insights. It's used to create barriers and polarization. Look, I think that being able to, I mean, that's I sort of feel like it's our responsibility as teachers and educators in this space to keep those lessons from the past alive right like just in the a few months ago um, I helped organize a panel uh, discussion about how to lead in a crisis right that had leaders speaking about the great depression um, Barcelona actually one of the leaders of, from Barcelona after the um, the financial crisis and in Cape Town after the AIDS crisis like <clears throat> there's so much to sort of transmit from those stories but we just don't I think that we don't know those stories very well and so you know certainly part of my mission with change makers is <laughs> is trying to surface some of those stories and lessons to be able to to um, make more accessible stuff from our history because um, I just don't think people know enough and I don't and it, we, we could say oh everyone should go read the books but people often don't so we need different learning tools to be able to make some of this stuff um, accessible because it's in the history that we'll find the solutions going forward <coughs> the lessons of the great depression are instrumental for understanding how we can build uh, this work with the with the real deal and the green new deal and if you don't know say the role of civil society and in particular the congress of industrial organizations which was the big union coalition at the time if you don't know that story it's hard to imagine the possibility of what civil society could do now but knowing that story can give you the confidence that change is possible in a certain form similar 
in Spain in the great in the financial crisis, um, it was again civil society. Then it was urban groups. Uh, you know, groups are a bit like the Sydney Alliance or, um, but you know, La Pa, which was a housing organisation that then ended up creating a new political party to be able to to break through the wall of of bureaucratic banality that had come out of the Spanish state in response to the evictions crisis. If you didn't know that, <laughs> you you would assume that the political parties we've got are the ones we've got forever, but that's not true. That actually change is possible. And I think that we can be inspired about change being possible, not by rhetoric. <laughs> like I don't want any more, you know, hope speeches. What I, 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 I'm less interested in the abstract. I think that this concrete utopia stuff comes from the fact that we've done this stuff before and so that's why i think that the history is so power the history is so powerful is because it's like well if they could they could do it we could do it you know in the context is different sure we've got climate change sure that's going to be <laughs> super tricky but but the idea that people can respond to overwhelming change like we we know this because of history mm, fantastic because a lot of inspiration to move forward from here. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about your work and what you're offering, where do we visit? Okay, cool. So if you were to go to changemakerspodcast.org, that's probably the best. I mean, this is probably the, the best and easiest place for people to go. Um, the Changemakers, like if you Google Changemakers podcast in any podcast app, you'll find the list of podcasts. It's been, it has been running for four years. So you might want to scroll um, a bit. Some are stories. So there's an in-depth This American Lifestyle, if that language is familiar, um, stories about a particular campaign like the Hong Kong protests or the Barcelona um, political camp work or Standing Rock or lots of really amazing campaigns from around the world. <coughs> but then also there are just interviews with change makers and lots of and change makers defined in a very broad way so you know as you're going through the list of uh, of content just the chats are obviously marked so the ones that have um the uh, asterisk signs are other stories and i that's a good place to start and then there's also the training tab which not only has links to the the trainings that we run on a weekly basis which you are more than welcome to join it's a really beautiful space anyone Anyone and everyone can come in. It's it's a great space to be able to interact and learn. Um, we've also recorded every single session. So you can scroll through the content from past sessions and and watch stuff. We've edited out the boring bits. So um, that works too. That's a great place to start. Enjoy. You could join our email list for updates. Fantastic. And thank you so much for joining us today. So many pearls of wisdom in there. Wondering if there's anything that you'd like to leave us with or any advice that you might have for aspiring change makers out there listening in. Oh, that's a good question. So I guess for the people who like to act, I'd say take a little bit of time to reflect and think. And for the people who like to reflect consider acting right like all of us have our predilections we step up or we step back and I'd encourage you to challenge yourself with the other habit um, going forward especially see how you can hold those two in, in stronger tension thank you for your listening ears and beating hearts 
For more info on the Human Potential series and the speakers we have lined up, visit earthbeatfestival.com. We appreciate your support, donations, reviews and feedback. Aroha nui.